Welcome to Scale Up Soundbites, where we discuss bite-sized ideas to help you scale up your career and your team. I'm Sam Elderfield, one of the co-founders of Scale Up Recruitment, your host. And today I'm talking to Dr. Kaushik Ram. Kaushik is a well-respected neuroscientist, TEDx speaker, and published author on topics about the brain and body. His life work has been dedicated to helping people better manage stress and anxiety, obtain states of flow, by developing better, a better relationship between your heart, nervous system, brain, and body. He's also managed software development teams on projects and is a very good friend of mine. Today, we're going to talk about how software developers can better manage stress and hack flow. Kashik, welcome to the show. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Wonderful to be here. How does stress impact your body and mind? That's a beautiful question because often there's quite a bit of uh, misconception around stress. Uh, some people believe stress to be toxic in the nervous system. Uh, stress by itself is not toxic. Uh, cortisol production is natural. Uh, we are designed to enter stressful states. But what happens is uh, often in stressful environments, if we don't know how to regulate our body, then stress becomes chronic, and chronic stress is bad for the body. So it uh, is the accumulation of cortisol, but also dysregulation of the nervous system. You might have uh, abrupt sleeping patterns or irregular sleeping patterns. You might have digestive problems, autoimmune conditions. A lot of this is linked to stress. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to say stress causes any of these things because there's a large number of factors that cause uh, symptoms. And often uh, people do commit the scientific sin of saying stress causes uh, you know, all these conditions. No, it, uh, it is correlated with a lot of these ailments. But at the same time, if you do know how to regulate stress, stress can be very beneficial. And we know it in um, uh, when we exercising, for example, uh, stress-induced muscle growth that is beneficial. When we are developing greater capacity for emotional management, stress is useful. Emotional stress is useful. So there's so many ways that stress can be beneficial, yet if we don't know how to regulate uh, our internal state, then it can become chronic. Yeah, okay. That's very, very interesting. So there's good stress and bad stress. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think stress, yeah, definitely gets like a bad rep out there, you know, um, and it's so easy to point the finger to blame things on stress. Um, but yeah, they are. Um, I, f I feel like, you know, too much stress is very, very, um, can be detrimental to your health, right? Um, especially when you're stressing about probably things that aren't really... To, you know, it's probably easy for me to say that ad important or in the big grand scheme of things, um, mm -hmm. you find people sort of stressing out on, on things. But um, yeah, you said good stress. So exercise, stress, stressful situations. Um, they're like opportunities for growth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And without stress, I don't think there would be any growth. Mm, yeah. Very, very interesting. Okay, so let's say you are faced with a stressful, stressful situation. You know, like a uh, big thing in what we're facing recruitment is about to go for an interview or if you're a manager and you need to give a big presentation, something like that. Um, 
are there any specific techniques or exercises that you recommend for, I don't want to say reducing stress, but maybe better handling stress and anxiety in these situations? I'm glad that you framed it that way because uh, we genuinely do have stressful scenarios. Our job interview is one. Um, public speaking is another. Mm. Social anxiety. These are all stress-inducing factors for good reason. Uh, first of all, we un- have to understand why this uh, stress effect happens in these scenarios. In a job interview, for example, um, you want to show your best self, that has a high emotional cost. The higher the emotional cost, uh, the more the stress. So if you were just going to meet with a friend, there is no emotional cost to it. Mm. You don't have to really impress your friends. They know you from back at home or whatever, and it's all good. But when there's this added um, condition of impressing someone, that adds more emotional weight to that encounter. And uh, you might even notice this when, for example, you have to speak to someone, maybe an employee, about something that um, is not comfortable to talk about. Mm. That heightens the stress response because the more meaning we give to something, the more our stress levels are if we consider whether it works out or not. So these are outcome-based stresses. So in these scenarios, uh, first of all, having the recognition that this is what is happening, it's a threat to my emotional state, it's a threat to my vulnerability, it's a threat to my identity Mm -hmm. because I will be asked questions that uh, requires me to prove myself therefore prove my identity, prove who I am. So those identity threats are things that causes stress. And that's why people do become nervous when it comes to these encounters. So first of all, you can't simply turn that switch off. Uh, There's nothing that I would say, like uh, I I could say along the lines of, oh, you just breathe, or just observe your thoughts, just be aware. It doesn't work like that. You have to be able to accumulate these practices over time. Have a practice beforehand. Uh, Maybe you have a regular meditation practice. Maybe your practice is taking 20 minutes out of your day just to walk um, along a path in a park or on the beach. Mm -hmm. These attributes help you acquire this state. So when you do enter a confronting situation, you have all the emotional reserves to walk into it with a calm and relaxed state. Mm -hmm. And that opens up the opportunity for a more compelling discussion rather than you trying to prove yourself because that need to prove yourself is often coming out of insecurity over your own identity. Mm -hmm. So when you don't need to prove yourself, that's a very different conversation. And that comes from not being stressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So it sounds like there's uh, quite a fair bit to unpack there. So the the reason why we see these moments of um, stress, or sorry, we see these moments of importance 
as stressful is potentially there may be what we deem as like a threat to our identity or our own personal belief systems as well. And there's no magic pill for that because these things are going to happen. If we want to succeed and grow, these things are going to get challenged. People want to know and understand these things. So um, it's realising that we're seeing that as a, as a threat. That's why we deem it as stressful. But if we can sort of shift that perspective with these everyday practices of potentially like walking, getting to know yourself, um, better hand or, or in, in, you know, encompassing that in a day that with the meditation you said as well, meditation perhaps as well, what you get a better understanding of yourself and that would allow you to shift that perspective in, when you're entering this, these situations that they just wouldn't be as stressful anymore because what you just more you're more comfortable with your own self that you that you don't deem these things as a, as a threat anymore a hundred percent so picture it this way if you are uncomfortable with your own thoughts if you're uncomfortable with your own body mm. how do you expect to be comfortable in a stressful scenario yeah yeah th- those things are prerequisites to be able to function in high stress situations so if you cannot do that by yourself, mm-hmm. um, putting yourself in an even more uncomfortable scenario is, you know, um, even more detrimental. Some people are counterphobic. So they, are, they have high anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the way they combat that anxiety is putting themselves in even more stressful scenarios. And then they go, ah, like I was... You know, they, they might say something along the lines of, I'm at home on the stage because all eyes are on them and they have nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. Uh, and that creates this sense of deep vulnerability, which puts them into a very heightened state. So in those moments, uh, it's similar to action-adventure sports when you are so in the moment that there is no else to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And everything that happens in the moment, you're truly in sync with it. Mm -hmm. That is what flow is. Mm. So some people require a substantial amount of stress or threat to enter that state. Yeah. But that's not productive because now you are dependent on an activity. Yeah. So what happens when you're not on stage? Yeah. Then the, these people are alone, anxious, and insecure. Mm-hmm. And that's why they keep uh, attracting those activities to compensate for the fact that they have high-functioning anxiety. I can relate to that so much. Um, and <laughs> when I discovered what flow was, and we'll, we'll talk about flow in, in a moment more more depth depthly um in depthly sorry but when i discovered what flow was i it was like a light bulb switched on for me that i'd be chasing that feeling my whole life i'm one of those a- adventure sport junkies and i didn't realize why it was but there was a few sort of like um anxiety issues in myself that i had to sort of deal with and i think what you know i projected to the outside world was you know a highly uh extroverted individual that loved these moments i loved debating I love getting up on stage I love doing it because I you know that kind of led me to forget about all the other sort of issues that were going on in my life and I love skateboarding I love surfing 
surfing so much and you know everything else you know anything that I could do to to get that heart pumping you know um but yeah there was the reason why I was constantly I, I couldn't sit still basically and my, my wife says this about me all the time so um yeah that's so interesting that there's that um what did you call it so I, I called it high functioning anxiety high functioning anxiety but it was also the um counterphobic 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 yeah. yeah such an interesting word okay cool i think yeah that's going to lead on to what we're going to talk about next so so we we touched on flow state what is flow state so the uh, traditional definition of flow is um there has to be a relationship between the amount of stress mm-hmm. and the amount of talent and when that is in a uh, one-to-one relationship, then you, you, you enter this peak state. Uh, this, this term flow state was uh, initially coined by a psychologist called Mihaly Mihai, mm-hmm. And uh, his understanding came from psychology, which at that time uh, was not... Um, bolted on with uh, the latest neuroscientific findings that we have today. So it was a psychological definition. He talked about, uh, I think, five different ways we can access or experience flow uh, when you enter this state where things happen effortlessly uh, without you thinking about it. It is automatic, which means that it happens without your own awareness. There's... um, peak creativity, which means that you cross that cognitive threshold where uh, you may be blocked in your creative expression at some point, but when you cross it, you cross over your cognitive threshold. Um, There's the state of intrinsic motivation. There's no goal or outcome that you're trying to achieve. The act of flow is its own benefit. And then there's this state of timelessness where time disappears where moments seem to extend into hours and hours may pass without you realizing it. So uh, this is the state a lot of people enter when they do something that is truly coming from their heart. It could be a, um, uh, an action-adventure sport or it could be something that you're truly passionate about. Uh, when I'm looking at creative endeavors, uh, I personally cannot do something that is not aligned with my heart. Mm. And I feel it in my body. My body literally does not respond. So all the activities I do engage in are truly coming from the heart, and I can work endlessly on those things. Um, don't get tired. Don't need coffee. I actually, I don't take coffee at all. <laughs> I don't have any stimulants. I, I'm, uh, this is what intrinsic motivation looks like. So uh, you don't need to microdose on anything to access this state. This is available to you when you're able to enter these states of flow. Mm. So uh, when we um, expand on uh, the ideas of Mihaly Sheikhs and Mihai, we find that um, you don't actually need an activity to induce flow. You can actually be in flow by shifting the state of your nervous system. 
most people, as I say, um, require an activity because they can't access it in any other way. But if you just show people, similar to how I was talking about stress, if you just show people how, then they're able to access, access it on demand. Mm. And the beautiful thing about that is then it can become perpetual. So you don't need uh, dependency on any activity. This can be your natural state. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And like I want this ability to do it right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's going to flow on next flow on um, really well to the next question. We do a lot of work with software developers. Um, yourself, you've, you've managed projects with software developers as well. They get into like um, a little flow state. I think they call it getting plugged in sort of thing. Some like stock market traders. I, you know, I used to play a lot of poker and, um, you know, there was like playing your A game where you just kind of feel like you're just in tune with everybody else that's on the table. Um, but yeah, we're going back to software developers specifically. You're, what you're saying is there is an ability for people to, I like to call hack flow. Um, how can they do that? So software development is interesting because it requires uh, uh, almost an amount of hyper-focus because in most cases you are computing so many layers of algorithms in your brain. So you might see a piece of code and it's layered with code from other platforms and uh, you know there's a lot of mathematical logical processing happening and if you think about what's happening to your working memory uh, just to first of all uh, define working memory it is the amount of information that you can hold in your mind in real time. Mm -hmm. So if I gave you three names like Tom, Jen, and Barry. You'd be able to recall that. But if I gave you their phone numbers, that would be memory overload. No chance, yeah. So <laughs> uh, th- this is the capacity of the working memory. Of course, if you can practice this and then you can remember numbers, but you're, uh, often people who do that memory recall type of activities, they've trained that mm-hmm. and they have sophisticated ways of patterning so they're not remembering the numbers per se, they're using some form of pattern recognition mm-hmm. to recall. So that is working memory. When you're doing software development, there's a lot that you're holding in your working memory. And so that can lead to working memory overload. And that eventually leads to burnout if it becomes chronic. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, um, when I used to do programming, for example, I, I had 14 screens. Wow. And I had, uh, back then, we didn't have cloud computing. So we had um, clusters of computers linked to servers uh, that was local. Mm-hmm. And I had probably like 36 to 40 computers working uh, in a, any given moment. And that's why I need 14 screens to monitor them. And how I did it was... I didn't care what was happening on any other screen other than the one that I'm looking at right now. So I'd work on that. Everything else hyper-focused. And then when I change my attention to another screen, I'm hyper-focused on that. So people think it's multitasking, but it's actually the opposite 
of multitasking because the more activities you have running at the same time, your memory starts to overload. But if you focus on one thing at a time, then you don't pay that multitasking tax of a previous activity um, floating into your current activity. So hope this makes sense because, you know, it, it, it is how I was able to spend months and months coding but not be exhausted or fatigued by it. Mm -hmm. So if you are a software developer, um, you, you know, you're getting started for your day, you want to get into that state, one of the things you can do is realize that you're going to focus on one thing at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which in itself sounds easy to do, mm -hmm. but when there's lots of things to do and emails floating around and uh, people trying to get your attention, that can be quite tricky to manage. Mm -hmm. So another layer of that is setting good boundaries. Yes. So when you are in that state of hyper-focus of concentration, uh, you want as little distractions around you. You know, you might switch on focus mode on your phone mm -hmm. or you might just isolate yourself from people uh, where instead of working in an office, you might be working somewhere else where people can't get in touch mm -hmm. with you. Yep. And those things add to that focusability. Yep. So working from home, if you can have that unique setup where you are away from those distractions could be a good thing for mm -hmm. getting into these flow states. If you've got clear instruction and guidance as to what you're going to do, you can you know, instead of, I think, like, in the, in the open office environment, we used to always see developers putting on their headphones, you know, that was like a clear indication of go away, I'm busy, I'm doing something sort of thing. And I think that term going dark gets thrown around where you, you're turning off your, your Slack chat, you, you're, you're going red on your Slack chat, not turning off, but going red on your Slack chat or your teams, making you unavailable, turning your phone on to the do not disturb and just really giving yourself the time to focus on the task at hand. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, addition to that mm. is doing the complete opposite. Right, okay. So uh, you, you can only maintain hyper-focus for so long. Yeah, okay. Uh, the reason perhaps for me I'm able to work, say, uh, 12, 14, 18 hours, like, like without um, breaks other than, you know, eating and... Uh, you know, uh, going to the bathroom and things like that. But I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't have extended periods of time not doing anything, which is perhaps even harder to do for people to think that, you know, wh what productivity benefits does not doing anything do? You know, it, it, for many, it seems counterproductive. But because I have extended periods of time of not doing anything, yeah. I'm able to f focus so much more when I'm doing something. Yeah, sure. So rest. Absolutely. Sleeping, meditation. Rest, yeah, so sleep is huge. Mm. Um, uh, I monitor my sleep and using biometric devices, depending on my sleep levels, I know each day what my activity levels are going to be. Yeah. Uh, Taking, as I say, uh, time out 
from your work to maybe have a uh, like a social discussion or uh, read a book yeah. or like anything that takes your mind off what you're doing that is just as important as doing the actual activity yeah that that's fascinating it makes sense um i want to go back where just just conscious of the time here and everything but go back to you said you're monitoring your sleep um you know and that gives you an idea of the amount of i guess input you can put into your day uh how can technology be used to reduce stress and anxiety or allow people to get into these flow states uh particularly for software developers or i mean this is pretty relevant to anyone i guess in, in your day to day um and uh I think it flows on nicely to the project that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh now we actually have so much um wearable tech available. Yeah. Uh and it's even in basic uh devices like Apple Watches, Fitbits. Um these all monitor your internal state. Uh previously, even a decade ago, in order to get a ecg signal you had to go to a hospital and uh, now you can get clinical grade ecg or near clinical grade what's ecg uh electrocardiogram which is basically right. a way of measuring your heart rate okay all yeah. right fair enough yes uh, <laughs> i i i do get like uh, sometimes <laughs> i use these jargons uh, like uh, forgetting the yeah. audience but uh, um so uh, when you monitor your heart rate um that is a very simple way of knowing what your internal state is um activities change your internal state you may work out in the morning and your baseline heart rate is lower that day you might not sleep uh properly one night and you realize your heart rate is accelerated the next day you might take coffee and you might be in an environment where it requires you to be empathetic and you're unable to do so because your mind is just full of ideas and unable to concentrate on what someone else might be saying yeah. so all these things used to be soft skills mm. and we didn't have data to support it but because we have wearable devices now we do have ways of tracking our internal state and what we can measure can be improved mm-hmm. so it's not about um gamifying that a lot of people think oh, i i got to beat my previous day yeah, yeah. got to be better than the last day uh that's not useful every day is different mm-hmm. sometimes you are more productive sometimes you are unproductive both are useful as we've discussed So it's more important to track these changes at a trend level and see how these fluctuations are happening say over a period of a month over 3 months 6 months and know that okay I'm in optimal health rather than trying to beat your record which is kind of stressful yeah can, yeah that that in itself is stressful i think yeah. like i remember um everybody in the, that whole 10,000 steps thing per day kind of i think mm-hmm. it was or something or thousand i can't remember what it is but every day it was like when i would hear people talking about it, it was like oh, i didn't get my steps up and you have a steps up like that is already like 
I, I don't know. Like, yeah, it, 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 it's that that in itself can be stressful. It's like, what am, oh, I'm going to beat myself up because I didn't get my steps up for the day. That can't yeah. be healthy for you to be thinking about it, right? The idea of doing yeah. the steps is healthy, but you know, beating exactly. yourself up about not achieving that is yeah, can be a bit detrimental. I know you spend a lot of time in your work around nervous systems. So how do the different nervous systems affect our ability to be productive, uh, relaxed and overcome stressful situations? In fact, the, the nervous system is binary. Uh, there's the sympathetic state, which we all know as fight or flight, and the parasympathetic state, which is rest and restorative. Uh, sometimes we call it rest and digest. And n neither of this state is better than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, some people say, oh, you should stay more in the parasympathetic state. And in meditation practices, especially Buddhism or Stoicism, they, they want to have the state of equanimity, which I think is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> so it's not about uh, being fixed in a state. It's about the ability to transition between states and how seamlessly you can do that. Because if someone, for example, makes you really angry right now and you focus on equanimity, trying to maintain your peace, maybe that moment doesn't require you to be peaceful. Maybe it requires you to stand up and say something. Maybe saying something means you are... Uh, you're setting boundaries, you, you're more protective over how people treat you and how people respect you. So it, it's not always about stoicism or equanimity or remaining in this calm, relaxed, peaceful state. No, uh, you, you, want to be, you want to be able to go into a heightened state, which is fight or flight, uh, and experience whatever emotion there is and then come back to a baseline relaxed state just as quickly. Mm. And this is what I was talking about uh, with the stress response. Mm -hmm. People who don't know how to do that accumulate chronic stress. And uh, people who do know how to manage have the freedom to actually live, express, and feel the aliveness of yeah. every emotion which is part of being human. Yeah. If you're not, if you're experiencing, say, positive psychology and like um, denying all the negative aspects, that's only half the human experience. So it's not really about positive psychology. It's not about positive emotions. It's about the ability to experience your full emotional range, which then means knowing what to do when you perhaps are experiencing grief, if you skip that process, then it re results in childhood trauma. It re results in post-traumatic stress disorder. It results in coping mechanisms that actually cost you more in the long run than if you just sat with that emotion and experienced it and resolved it. Mm -hmm. Childhood trauma and coping mechanisms are basically unresolved things that are perpetuating itself way beyond its life cycle. Mm. So something that happened a long time ago, you're experiencing or re-experiencing it, 
in moments that has nothing to do with what you experienced yeah. in the past. So that's why it's important to uh, have this full spectrum of emotion and go between those two states of fight or flight and parasympathetic. And that's a properly regulated nervous system, one that's able to fluctuate between the two seamlessly. Yeah, fantastic. I think that does, if you're able to do that, um, even if you're conscious of it or not, I think you can, from the sounds of it, you live in more of a full life. And I guess it's, you know, what we deem as not necessarily a happy life or um, it could result in a, in a pretty happy life because you're able to, um, I guess, allow yourself to experience in these other emotions and then enjoy the other ones as well and realises, you know, those things are there for a reason. It could be for those to set the, to realise you have to set a boundary. You know, you feel this way to do that as well. Um, but then also able to get into that relaxed state for when you need to, to do it. Um, to be in those states of like hyper focus as well, or whatever that might be too. Um, okay, okay, cool. I just wanted to, you know, um, go back to talking about the technology that you're working on specifically at the moment. Are, are we able to talk about that? And because um, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's it's it ties in nicely to monitoring your states of anxiety and stress, and poti- potentially looking at these nervous systems. I'm not sure. Do you want to just elaborate a bit further on that? Absolutely. So it. The technology that we're developing is monitoring or estimating your emotional state. So it's similar to how I described it before. Uh, You want to have the full spectrum of human emotion. Hmm. And we're using our AI tools able to estimate which emotion you're experiencing and uh, map that throughout the day. So this offers such a huge opportunity for people to understand their emotions. For example, a kid uh, who is feeling extremely rageful mm. for, uh, you know, maybe the circumstances, maybe they're, they're being bullied and they're, they're extremely hurt and that then leads to resentment which then leads to rage how does the kid um, express that it's usually through action but if they're able to see how the emotions are changing maybe when they're at home and the parents are trying to understand what's going on the kid might not be able to verbalize that but say, look, mom, like this has been my emotional fluctuation. And the mom goes, oh, wow, like you went through phases of guilt and um, hurt. And, you know, like it, it offers so much more depth and precision to kids these days. They don't understand emotions. So they find the, le- the closest emoji that approximates how they feel and they send that. Yeah. They can't even conceptualize or verbalize what they feel. Mm-hmm. So that that's one thing. Add that to how it would affect therapy and mental health treatments. Add that to how it would uh, facilitate discussions on confronting situations. There's so many applications to this. So this is the uh, technology that we're building. 
and uh, I'm extremely excited to when, when it actually goes live. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating bit of technology. What's the uh, what's it called? Are you able to tell us what it's called? Yeah, it's called Intruth Technologies. Intruth Technologies. Okay. All right, we'll be on the lookout for that. Mm-hmm. Kaushik, mate, this has been an absolute pleasure. I think I, I got into a, a state of flow because time has just flown by to, to use mm-hmm. that again. And, um, yeah, I can geek out about this all day long. But um, So thank you so much for, for coming in and, and sharing your wisdom with us today. Absolute pleasure, Sam. It's been incredible to just um, share this with you. Yeah. Um, when can, where can people connect with you? Uh, I think you've got your own website and, and YouTube channel going on. Do you want to tell the people who are listening today? Yeah, so the easiest way is just uh, Google search. Um, uh, my name is Dr. Koshik Ram. Uh, Koshik is spelled K-A-U-S-H-I-K. Ram is spelled R-A-M. And if you just do a Google search, it'll just guide you to the, you know, whatever you wish to search. Like if it's my book, which is called Hidden World, um, there's uh, my YouTube channel, um, there's my website, which has online courses. Uh, the I guess the entry level one is Train Your Nervous System, which shows you how to uh, connect with the body, with the nervous system and heightens that brain-body connection, and it instills the state that we have been talking about. So those are a few resources that you can use. And, um, yeah, uh, my YouTube channel offers all this information for free. Yeah, fantastic. Fascinating stuff, brother. All right. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks again for coming in today. Yeah, thank you, Sam. (laughs) 